Welcome to Inside the Founder Studio with the California Technology Council. On this very special episode, we combine Inside the Founder Studio with the innovation agenda and get an insider's look at a congressional chief of staff who was previously co-founder of Zillabyte. This episode of Inside the Founder Studio is brought to you by First Pitch Smart Grid, CTC's demo day on smart grid and smart building technologies in San Jose on November 10th. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org. On this episode of the Innovation Agenda, we're speaking with Roger Dean Hufstetler, Chief of Staff to Congressman Seth Moulton, representing the 6th District of Massachusetts. Roger, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, RD, we're going to go back into your history a little bit here and talk about the unusual path you've taken to being a Chief of Staff to a member of Congress. Let's go back to your Marine Corps service. You've built your Marine Corps service with a very unusual flavor in the sense that you've highlighted your Marine Corps entrepreneurship role. That's certainly not the average Marine Corps service. Can you talk about how that developed and what the role was like? Sure. Well, uh, I actually would somewhat disagree with that. I think the Marine Corps is by far the most innovative and entrepreneur-friendly service. Uh, of course, it is a massive bureaucracy, but it, it distributes down relatively quickly to the unit level. And a commanding officer can be relatively nimble in how he or she um, attacks problems and deploys his troops, his or her, tro her troops. And so I think that's just part of the mentality. It's small unit leadership. A 22-year-old uh, Lance Corporal of Marines might be might lead his fire team, and so uh, you know he might be in charge of uh, three other Marines. So the small unit leadership mentality of the Marine Corps really does push uh, idea generation down, and really teaches you to uh, you know good ideas win here. And of course, it's not always true, but um, you know you're able to get to the CO relatively quickly if you know, through the right channels. And and I think you know I, what I was able to do, which I feel very fortunate about, was. Um, I think do a relatively good job in my day job, which was uh, helping with the operations of my Prowler unit, which was deployed out of Cherry Point, North Carolina, but at the same time try to write about some of the larger macro problems that we faced uh, with the bureaucracy and things like training Marines to deal with uh, technology and the changing battlefield with um, you know, social media and things like that. So I just feel very fortunate to have had that experience of, of being able to uh, help, help run my shop, but then also, uh, to a certain degree, influence how I believe the Marine Corps was thinking about it as a whole. Now, in some large corporations, that role is sometimes referred to as intrapreneurship. Did you have uh, responsibilities that looked like that in a, in a corporate setting uh, on the Marine Corps stage? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great way to look at it. Um, I really worked hard to innovate on our unit level, whether that was, you know, with something like the Marine Corps mentoring program or you know, how we were using information to make sure Marines were prepared to go overseas. Um, and then I tried to advocate for that approach from a macro perspective as well through some of the articles that I wrote. So uh, I think that's a great approach to take in any organization. Um, you know, advocate for change internally and then make the case externally as well. Um, it can be quite a, quite a great one-two punch. And, and as I said, I was fortunate to have some success at changing some things that we were doing. And it um, felt good to be a part of, the, part of that important mission. So, R.D., you attended Harvard and did a joint MBA and MPA. Uh, how did that shape your future? Well, you know, I always say I went to Harvard, but uh, don't hold that against me. No one's perfect. And um, <laughs> it was a great experience. Um, I learned quite a bit about subjects I knew nothing about, ranging from finance and accounting 
um, compliance and things like that. And then, you know, I think I was able to add a little bit to the debate on things like leadership uh, and management from, from things I do know about in my background. Um, the joint degree is interesting because uh, I started at the business school and, and really fell in love with the institution. It's a place that really takes learning and the, the classroom seriously. Um, I would describe the Kennedy School as a place that has some, some really strong virtues but, you know, doesn't take the classroom as seriously and that was something that disappointed me a bit. But I did have some, some great classes. I took Joe Nye's class. He's quite a thoughtful human being and, and I took Ron Hypens' class as well in leadership and, and, and there's uh, several others I'm sure I'm forgetting. But, uh, took David Gergen's class, and, uh, you know, you do get both perspectives on this, and I think it, it has been helpful uh, over the course of my career to have those two uh, very different experiences uh, in my back pocket, and, and, of course, today in this job, uh, I act at, one of the things we do here, it's a little bit different on Team Moulton, is because Seth and I are both fellow Marines, we run the office as if it were a battalion, and Seth is the commanding officer and I'm the executive officer. And effectively, and so basically, you know, I try to focus on internal operations. Uh, I try to be an advisor to Seth, and and things like that. So, you know, the models from the Marine Corps and the things I've learned to this point uh, have been helpful. Very interesting. Okay, so you've you've given us sufficient foreshadowing for us to come back to how Congressman Moulton uh, runs his shop. We'll come back to that in a minute here. Uh, you you after Harvard, you go into a booze and company, and uh, you know. If this uh, doesn't uh, influence your entrepreneurial life, I'm not sure what else could have. You you uh, describe your work there as uh, working in the online economy. Uh, was that just luck, or was it uh, by design that you wanted to go and do something in particular while you were at Booz? Well, the honest answer is a little bit of uh, bad luck in a sense that, uh, quite frankly, the there was not a lot of work uh, during that time. And so I suggested to one of the partners that we uh, write a bit about uh, what's called profit pooling in the online economy. So where is the value accruing to for the players um, that are building these new business models? And I actually left before they finished the publication. Um, I came home one day and I watched Steve Jobs' speech. And there's a part of that speech at Stanford Commencement where he says, your time is limited, don't waste it living someone else's life. Uh, and I called my then girlfriend, now wife, and said, you know, I'm, I'm, I love you, I want to be with you, but I'm quitting this job today. And that got me, you know, a couple of weeks on the couch, but in the end, uh, it was the right decision because I just wasn't happy in that environment where uh, you're basically writing a report that no one reads, and it was just something that it wasn't compelling to me personally. Uh, there are a lot of fine people in that industry who do great work, but I felt I lacked the the touch point for the execution aspect of, of business that I got much more excited about when we got to Silicon Valley. When we, well, I was in Silicon Valley, but when I got to more operating roles at startups. Very interesting. So that led you to Twilio. How did you end up there, and what was that role designed to do? Yeah, actually, I um, feel very blessed and fortunate to have gotten that job at Twilio. It certainly took uh, longer to get into technology than I'd hoped, but when we got there, I think it worked out. Um, some, I got a reference to the CEO there, Jeff Lawson, who's an outstanding human being, and uh, had, Jeff has, has, just has a great background in not only startups but general management with his time at Amazon. And he had this great idea, which is building an API for the, on top of, uh, for the telecoms industry. And, um, you know, I was lucky to be employed 58 there and started as what they called a strategic sales manager, which effectively meant I mostly worked on relationships with many of their high-growth customers. Um, 
tried to get some of those startups in SF to start using the product um, when they didn't necessarily have a huge volume with the concept that they were going to grow and continue to use the platform. And so that worked very well, quite honestly, and uh, something I was very excited about to build relationships with those types of companies and learn about their business models as well. And I was really fortunate also to be able to start the business, um, I think they call the business associate program where they bring in young college grads and sort of start the sales process. So I got a little bit of small team leadership as well as sales experience there. And I thought it was a overall fabulous experience. You know, luckily the, the company is doing very well and, and Jeff's still leading the company and uh, glad to have a relationship with he and the other co-founders. So that's an interesting aspect in starting, a, you know, in a startup when it's small. So you get your taste of explosive growth, and that leads you to jump off and, and start a company called Zillabyte. Uh, how did that concept develop, and when did you know that you had uh, the makings of a, of a new company? Well, so just to back up, back up a little bit and, and kind of discuss the, the Twilio business model, what, what happens with Twilio is they decided they wanted to empower web developers to build what they call communications applications. So that's where their technology comes in. They built what's called an API, which is a structured way to communicate with a machine that a web developer can understand. And they built this API so that they can, they can deploy communications applications. Our concept with Zillabyte was basically, well, how, do, how are web developers going to solve their data problems? What if we built an API, in our case a scripting language, where web developers could solve their own data problems? So that's the fundamental thing we we're trying to solve. Um, we ended up you know, raising some money for some great VCs like DFJ, Menlo Ventures, and then other people in the lean startup movement like um, Eric Reese and Dharma Shaw or some of our investors. And we got started and we hired a great team and we developed a product we were really proud of and had users and, and folks who were paying us a bit. And, um, and then you kind of learn that the bar is extremely high uh, to keep that process going. So the problem we're trying to solve is basically how do we make data analysis accessible to every web developer? Um, and uh, we did not quite get there, but it was a great learning experience and um, certainly learned an, an amazing amount about how technology is built, uh, about how to work with engineers, about you know, maker versus manager time, a framework that we, that we still try to use here a bit in, uh, in Congressman Moulton's office. So Roger Dean, you, you once told me a story about uh, where you were finding engineering talent and how it led you to needing to be on the peninsula, basically. Could you reflect on that now that you've uh, had a little time to to uh, to be out of the industry and, and reflect on things maybe. And, uh, how, how do you think the, the talent market in the U.S. Uh, shaped your uh, startup life and, and is shaping, uh, I think, you know, the development of technology communities around the country? Yeah, when anyone ever asked the question, how did you recruit someone who has a Ph.D. in computer science, someone who has a Ph.D. in astronomy, a person who studied computer science at Penn and Cornell and, went, and another guy went to Princeton, how do you recruit this great talent for your small startup? I'd say brute force. Um, it was literally getting up every day and emailing 50 engineers and giving them the pitch. So it's not, there's not some kind of like complicated magic formula. It's basically do you want to find the best possible people and are you willing to put the time in? And, uh, you know, we worked very hard at recruiting. And that, a lot of credit here goes to my co-founder, Jacob Quist, who's a – just a superb, you know, that people call engineers, you know, 10x engineer. Jacob is a 100x engineer. He can build anything, and he's very thoughtful in this process. He can just, you know, he really pitched the, the grand vision of the product and the platform, and, and other engineers love that, and he's a great leader. And so I was very fortunate to have him uh, help me do this. But, you know, quite frankly, I played a role as well, and that was to, 
the, uh, the sending the, the brute force email guy, which I was happy to play. But um, you know, this is a, this is a macro problem, Matt, that we really got to do better at as a country. We can't under we can't really think of this as a zero sum thing where if we let high skilled immigrants in to the country, we're somehow necessarily taking a job away from someone else. Um, very much, you know, uh, want. Americans to have access to high skills so they can have these jobs as well. That's a totally different question, though, than should we allow people with these high skills to have these jobs. We should work on both of these problems at the same time, quite honestly. And, um, you know, uh, it's a very big problem that is constraining the growth of many of our tech companies. And the tech industry, whether you like it or not, is the growth engine for the American economy going forward. And we have to, we have to reconcile some of the c problems that we have with underemployment and, and wage stagnation with this, uh, and it's a complicated problem, but it's something that hopefully we can get some smart folks working on and make some progress on. Yeah, I appreciate that. This might be a, a question for Jacob, but in that time that you were at Zillabyte, how much did the company evolve? And, and I know uh, that Zillabyte had something to do with Y Combinator possibly before you were on board, but uh, how much did that acceleration platform help the company's development and how much did it change its path? That's a great question, and Jacob took the company through YC with two other founders who, who eventually left the company. Um, and, um, you know, when they went to YC, they basically got into YC on the premise of being three smart engineers with kind of an idea, and the idea at the time was like, how would we have the web at people's fingertips? How would we have this massive data set uh, easily usable by anybody? By anybody, I think they meant a web developer. And that kind of morphed into one point into – um, maybe using external attributes for, for customers to be able to prioritize who you might want to contact. And then later it morphed to this concept of a scripting language for data analysis. And this last one, you know, there's a great saying in Silicon Valley, build something people love. I have a corollary to that, build something you love. And, you know, uh, the, it's really hard to build something other people love. And I think the way that mostly starts is by building something you love. And again, we didn't quite get to the second goal here of building something that other people love necessarily, but we had a product that we were very proud of that we felt like democratized data analysis in a way that, you know, quite frankly, no one's done yet. And uh, that was one way the product changed when I came on board was it really had an emphasis on using, trying to use the Twilio playbook in terms of making the platform approachable and easy to understand. So now we come to the point in your personal walkthrough life where there's a dramatic 90-degree sharp turn here. Uh, your a grad school friend and uh, colleague as a Marine, Seth Moulton, ends up getting elected uh, to represent the 6th District in Massachusetts and calls on you to come and be his chief of staff. Uh, what can you tell us about what that phone call was like and uh, how difficult was it to consider changing your path to, from entrepreneurship to public service? So Seth got elected. Um, and of course, I was very excited. He had, when he when he came to San Francisco, he would often, um, you know, stay with us or something like that because we were long-term friends. And um, he got elected. And, and in February or so, I shot him a note and I said, Emily and I are trying to get back to the East Coast, and we have been for some time. And if I could help out in some way, I'd be excited about that. And he called me that night and said he didn't have a chief of staff. And I said, Seth, you've been a congressman for 90 days. We probably want to get your act together. So, uh, you know, a little bit of ribbing him there, but. Uh, he, he, you know, went through the interview process that they have here, and then I started on April 1st. And quite honestly, um, it wasn't a hard decision at all for, for numerous reasons. I think one is Seth is a good friend. 
Uh, two, I think Seth, you know, has his heart in the right place. He really wants to change how the government works and focus on uh, problem solving and not partisanship. And then I think the third thing is that, um, you know, I, I believe that some of the lessons, uh, many of the lessons of Silicon Valley are what, what's most needed right now in our nation's capital. Um, nobody here is familiar with lean startup. Nobody knows about uh, build, measure, learn. Nobody knows about customer development. Um, the VA has done a remarkable job, actually, of recruiting a lot of not good folks into their innovation center. Uh, the White House has done an outstanding job of getting the USDS off the ground, US Digital Service, and they actually recruited one of the Twilio co-founders there. Um, so that, you know, their pieces are starting to come together. Um, I think, you know, I've been able to play a small role here on the Hill so far, and I'm hoping to play a little larger role going forward as we continue this discussion about why is the government procuring, buying, distributing, uh, restricting software as if it were 1980. It's, it's literally like coming in a time machine when you step into this building. Um, it's, it's, and it's not that they're bad folks. It's not that they're folks that don't care about their country or are lazy or anything like that. It's just a risk-averse culture, and there's only one way to change that, and that is, um, you know, we've got to lead by example, by doing things that are a little more in keeping with how software is built today. And so, you know, some examples of that are, we're building a dashboard here at Team Moulton, and we're going to figure out um, how to measure metrics of a congressional office in a way that's in keeping with, with the standards that we have for ourselves and, and being good representatives of our constituents. Um, and we hope to, at some point, open source that so that every member of Congress can use that to be a better congressman, congressperson. So, um, you know, we've just started that process. It could take us, I don't know how long it's going to take us to do that, but uh, we're excited about that. And um, we're really trying hard to, um, to embrace this, what we call government 2.0 mentality of, you know, let's build the minimum possible thing, let's get someone to react to it, and let's make it better. Really embrace this experimental learning framework. Can you talk about, uh, you, you mentioned a little bit how uh, the, maybe the lack of awareness of what's happening in Silicon Valley with Lean Startup and those kinds of movements, uh, you know, is a, is a difference. How about the lens that you look at things through as an entrepreneur when you're looking at government process? Uh, what are the strengths that you can take into this as an entrepreneur, and where do you see opportunity to, to be disruptive? Well, the same traits that serve entrepreneurs well uh, will serve someone who comes to the nation's capital well. You have to start with persistence. Um, the first answer you get is always going to be no, and so you've got to keep going with that and think, you know, okay, fine, let's have that next conversation. Let's, you're planting the seed to come back and revisit this discussion. Um, that's just, you know, when you're raising money, you're going to get 98 no's or whatever it is, you know. Uh, it's going to happen. So you've got to, you know, that's going to happen here too. And that's, that's the number one lesson, you know, is uh, I always say, thankfully, persistence is a great substitute for talent, which is a saying uh, that Steve Martin has. Um, and so that's, that's the number one lesson. I think the, how do we be disruptive? Well, part of, part of the process here is, um, you know, using things that are at our fingertips now that even just even when I started weren't. So, for example, the House announced just about a month ago, maybe a little more than that, that now the House, I guess the phrase is they support open source, meaning we are now allowed as a congressional office to, to use open source libraries as necessary to build some products. So that's a big step forward. That is a really big step forward that, again, some great people here internally have been working on. So this isn't any influence from Roger Dean Huffstadel, this is a long idea that they've been working on. So that's a lot of kudos to them. And so now it's on, quite frankly, people like us who understand a bit more about how um, software has developed to figure out, okay, well, how do we get those right components in the open source libraries? How do we get them here on Capitol Hill? How do we make them accessible? Um, 
that's all part of the next part of the discussion that we're working on right now, and we're working very hard on it. And we have uh, an outstanding staff member here uh, who works with me quite a bit who was also at a startup, and she's got great experience at this kind of thing, and she's running this down for the team as we work together and figure out what are the features of this you know, MVP for the dashboard, and you know, we're excited about that kind of thing. Yeah, so, you know, very interesting opportunities to approach things differently. Uh, what about your uh, kind of different work practices? When you, when you go through Lean Startup, of course, and you, you develop an MVP, you iterate quickly. Uh, what are the parallels to that in the policymaking process you're seeing? Well, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, what we try to do is uh, I think it's the same mentality, which is like, what is the ROI for this activity? You know, how, how do we get the biggest bang for our buck in terms of learning, but also in process, in, uh, in, um, in changing the policy? And, and I'll give you an example. We, one of the VETS bills that we're working on now, all it does is take a, a, an outstanding uh, VET scholarship, uh, a scholarship for medical professionals to work at the VA, and it just says, let's get more of those. So it's a, a great example of, you know, learning about a program that's working and then um, you know, trying, to, trying to increase the size of that pool of applicants or uh, that kind of thing. We're really trying to embrace this throughout the organization, whether it's, you know, administrative tools that we're trying to use or a legislative process. We, we, we're working very hard to institute this growth mindset and this uh, lean startup mentality. Back to the uh, MVP process and, and uh, lean startup for a second, there's a, you know, the in software, there's something called a sprint, which helps you get short pieces done quickly. Is there a parallel in in policymaking or in, in running an office there? Is it is it the parallel to working on a bill and, and going through amendments, or is that not quite the perfect example to use? It's it's such it's such a great question. Uh, what is the what is the what is the analogy to batching software production, and 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 what does it look like now on the hill, and what did it look like ten years ago, and what will it look like ten years from now? I don't think the process has changed that much, Matt. If I had to guess, in the last thirty years, you know, it's it's basically you talk to the committees, you get input from the professional staff, you try to figure out what kind of language will make it through the House. I guess in the Senate, same thing. So it's not been uh, terribly different uh, than back then. And so if you have an idea you go and approach those committees and figure out how to get the legislation through the Congress. Um, there's, you know, it is an interesting concept, like what, what are we doing here? What are we making? Um, we're making laws, and we're doing our best to represent our constituents. So does that lend itself to this batched process of development? And, uh, you know, and, and this program has this great post on maker versus manager. So, you know, maker time is large, block, large blocks of uninterrupted time, which engineers tend to prefer, and there's manager time, which is broken up in meetings. And as you can imagine, uh, there's a lot of manager time in this job, and there's not as much maker time. And so sometimes I worry about, does that mean our leaders are thinking about these hard problems? There's a great saying, um, leadership is focusing on a topic long enough to have an idea about it. And we're often so much in manager time that it is hard to focus and solve all problems, uh, like an engineer would. But it's something that in Team Bolton we certainly strive for and we certainly discuss quite frequently. So we're trying to push the needle in that direction. Very interesting. So I've got a, just a couple more questions for you, Roger. We appreciate all the time you're spending with us today. Uh, has anything surprised you about the rough and tumble part of stepping into a congressional office? Well, there's two things. Seth would tell you he's absolutely shocked by the institutional partisanship. The orientation, for example, is done in parties. So you don't go to orientation with Republicans. 
That seems totally absurd. Um, but I will say he will also tell you that there's, you know, almost no animosity between Republicans and Democrats on the personal level. And that's quite a remarkable thing, especially if you look at the paper and you're not sure that you could believe that. But um, so I think there's, there's, you know, things to be worried about and there's things to celebrate. And I think one of the things that we work really hard on in this office is making sure we're building relationships, not with, with Democrats, which is quite easy because you see them frequently, but also with Republicans, because that's a very important part of the job is, is working with folks who don't necessarily see eye to eye on everything. Uh, last question for you. We love to give our guests a time machine. If you could go back and tell yourself something about the life you're about to step into, but you only had 10 seconds to do it, how might you use the time machine, Roger Dean? What would you tell yourself? The purpose of life is to learn and worry about that metric alone. Wow. You, I think, Roger Dean, you might have actually done better than the 10 seconds and be the first guest of ours to do that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I guess that's sort of, uh, if your life experience can be summed up in 10 words, I'm not sure that's a good thing, but uh, there you have it. Well, Roger Dean Hufstetler, the Chief of Staff to Congressman Seth Moulton, thank you so much for the insights today, and uh, we love what you're doing. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Matt. I enjoyed being here, and I appreciate being included. Join CTC and a lineup of investors and startups for First Pitch Smart Grid on November 10th in San Jose. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org. Inside the Founders Studio is produced in Northern California by the California Technology Council.